I encourage you to take your Bible, turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to talk about Paul fulfilling his calling. Now, I've been thinking about this. People wonder why we finished. We went through 2 Peter. We went through 1 John. We're in Galatians. We've been talking a lot about false teaching. And, uh, but it just hits me almost every week. I had a conversation with a young lady who grew up in a very solid church. And uh, it's interesting, as we talked, she told me she believes in evolution and she believes that there are other ways besides Jesus to get to heaven. And so I hear these conversations almost weekly from people who are claiming to be Christians. And so I think it's important that we continue to understand and define these things because with the advent of YouTube and the internet, there's so many, so many teachings out there. We need to know what the truth is so we can spot the counterfeit. So that's why we're in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, it says, Then after 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And may God add his reading, may God add his blessing in his reading of his word today. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray you'll God, give me clarity of thought and clarity of mind. There's a lot of things to consider as we go through these passages today. I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would lead us and pray that you would help us to be receptive, to hear and receive and apply to our lives what is in these words today. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Elmer Davis said this, this will remain the land of the free only so long as it is the home of the brave. He wrote that in a book called, But We Were Born Free. And his convictions would certainly be echoed by the Apostle Paul. To Paul, his spiritual liberty in Christ is worth far more than popularity or even security. He was willing to fight for Christian liberty. And Paul's first fight for Christian liberty was at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, verses 1 through 35, you should read that along with Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. His second was at a private meeting with Peter in uh, Galatians 2, we'll see it next week, in 11 through 21. Had Paul been unwilling to wage this spiritual warfare, the church in the first century might have become only a Jewish sect preaching a mixture of law and grace, but because of Paul's courage, the gospel was kept free from legalism and it was carried to the Gentiles with great blessing. Paul moves now into chapter 2 of Galatians, sharing his important call by God and ministry primarily to the Gentiles who needed Christ at the time. And you and I, when we get to the end of this message, we're going to talk about our call, our personal responsibility, whether you're a student who is in elementary or middle school or high school or college. We have a calling on our life to be, bring light to 
the light of Christ to the classroom. <clears throat> when we get into adulthood, in our working years, that's when God kind of defines what our passions, what our desires are, what our gifts and talents are, and then to use those in a vocational way as a calling. When we move into retirement, God also has that as a season of our life to uh, be a calling to our kids, grandparent kids, and other things in our life as well. So we have a calling for each season of life. So I want to make sure that as we see Paul's calling, we think about our calling as well. So our first main point this morning is this, clarifying the call to the true gospel. Clarifying the call to the true gospel. Paul went to Jerusalem because of a revelation from God. Let me reread verses 1 through 2a. Then after 14 years, Paul went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with him. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, it records that Paul made five visits during his ministry life to Jerusalem. The debate among scholars as to whether this uh, time that he traveled up was to take care of bringing a collection to the Jerusalem church, or was this the Jerusalem council in Acts 15? So they're split on that. So I'm going to, after looking at the evidence, I'm going to believe that this is when they met for the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. The question there was, do Gentiles need to convert to Jewish circumcision and traditions that some of the Jewish believers adopted in order to be saved? The Jewish legalists who claimed to be Christians were demanding that Gentiles do these things. They came down from the Judea region and went to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were ministering mightily in that city. And they began teaching in their church what it says here in Acts 15.1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, after Paul and Barnabas debated them for a while on this issue, it was decided that both groups should go up to Jerusalem to settle the dispute. Now, it's interesting that Peter, as you know, in Acts 10, had that vision, and God said, there isn't anything unclean to eat. And Paul, Peter then eventually, shortly thereafter, I should say, experienced the Holy Spirit coming down and indwelling the uncircumcised Gentiles as God was showing affirmation of the gospel being received by them. And remember this, Martin Luther said this in his commentary, the Holy Spirit never came down as a result of preaching the law but he did come down when the gospel was preached. So in Acts 15, this is Peter's eyewitness account, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them, the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. In Acts 15, earlier in that chapter, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these Jewish legalists, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So Barnabas and Titus occupied Paul with the other leaders to Jerusalem. Just who were these characters in Acts 15 and Galatians 2 that we're talking about? 
Well, Barnabas was one of Paul's closest friends. In fact, when Paul tried to get into the fellowship of the Jerusalem church, it was Barnabas who opened the way for him. The disciples were skeptical of Paul, but then Barnabas brought him in and they trusted Barnabas' judgment and they accepted Paul. The name Barnabas means, as many of you know, son of encouragement. And you always find Barnabas in scripture encouraging somebody. And when the gospel came to the Gentiles in Antioch, it was Barnabas who was sent to encourage them and grow them in their faith. And so then, thus, in the early days, Barnabas was associated with the Gentile believers, and Barnabas went and got Paul and brought him up to Antioch to help minister as well. And the two worked together, not only teaching and discipling, but helping the poor people in the region in Acts chapter 11. Titus was a Gentile believer who worked with Paul and apparently was one to Christ through the apostles' ministry, according to Titus 1.4. And he was a product of the apostles' ministry among the Gentiles and was taken to Jerusalem Conference as Exhibit A, or a test case, from the Gentile churches. In later years, Titus assisted Paul by going to some of the most difficult churches that they encountered to help solve problems. Three men as it mentions in verse 9 of Galatians 2 that we'll get to, were the pillars of the church. Pillars is the word used there, speaking of Peter, John, and James, the brother of Christ. Peter, we know, a prominent part of the accounts in the gospel, as well as the first half of the book of Acts. It was Peter who was involved in opening the door of the faith to the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. John, we also know from the gospel records, was one of the inner three apostles associated with Peter in the ministry of the word. And the gospel indicates that Mary and Joseph had other children and James was among them. And they were not believers in Christ until after his resurrection. And James became the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, according to Acts 15 and other places. He was also the writer of the epistle of James and that letter plus Acts 21:18 would suggest that he was very Jewish in his thinking. So along with these men and the apostles and elders were a group of false brethren who infiltrated the meetings and tried to rob the believers of their liberty in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4 of Galatians. Undoubtedly, these were some of the Judaizers who had followed Paul church after church after church and had tried to capture his converts. And that's why it's important to read Acts 15 along with Galatians chapter 2. So back to Galatians 2, with that background in mind, Paul came to the church leadership to make sure that what he was preaching as the gospel was the same as the apostles were preaching to the Jews and those who became Jewish believers. Paul, it says, received a revelation to go up to Jerusalem while he was ministering to the Gentile believers in Antioch. And the Antioch church gave them blessing and encouragement as Paul and Barnabas left. Paul spoke to the Jerusalem church leaders containing the apostles in private to confirm that they were all sharing the same gospel. In Acts 15, 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related with signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Paul set before them the gospel he had been preaching to the Gentiles, that it's Salvation through faith by grace that we are saved. Trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Realizing that we are a sinner. That we're incapable in any capacity to earn our way to heaven. 
but that we humbly bring ourselves before God and confess we are sinners and say thank you for dying on the cross and paying for my sin and asking Christ to come in and take control of our lives and to turn away from our sin. That's the gospel of Peter and Paul that they were preaching. And so it was grace by faith-based gospel versus the Jewish legalist gospel, which was a works-based righteousness adding on to the gospel of circumcision and the traditions of the Old Testament law. So the Jerusalem church was affected by these Jewish legalists and teachers after much debate in Acts 15. Peter spoke, then Paul and Barnabas responded, and then a letter was written for clarification to the Gentile believers to explain the conclusion of the matter. So we see, second of all, under this point, Paul went to Jerusalem because he wanted affirmation that his preaching wasn't reckless. It wasn't in vain. That he wasn't wasting his time. It says at verse 2, at the second part of that verse, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. One writer of Messianic Judaism said that Paul had a, quote, sinking feeling in his stomach as he and Barnabas and Titus approached Jerusalem. Paul knew that he was teaching a radical interpretation of the gospel outside of the apostolic norm, end of quote. That's not at all how Paul felt. He was confident in the gospel he was sharing with the Gentiles because of the revelation that gave him the gospel he was preaching. Paul came for this purpose, and that was to unify, to unify. Unity meant so much to Paul among the believers that he felt if a division existed, his sharing of the gospel would have been in vain. There had to be agreement on the content of the gospel, or he would have been teaching a false gospel for over 14 years. This was so important to Paul. So the application here, it's important for us from time to time to return to the basics of our faith for clarity. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get so wound up in reading things and deep things and all these things, and sometimes you just have to push the, the button and go back and just look at the basics. And that's what Paul was doing. He wanted clarity with him and the apostles to be unified on this thing of the gospel. So Paul challenges the Jewish legalists as he is second of all contending, contending for the true gospel. Now these next two verses, three and four, may have been understandable to the Galatian believers, but to the modern scholar, they're almost impossible to understand. J.B. Lightfoot called it a shipwreck of Greek grammar. It may have been that Paul was writing and he was so passionate about what he's writing about, they think he didn't finish his sentences. But the modern translators have helped us to understand that the test to return to the slavery of the Old Testament law, Galatians 2, let's read verses 3 and 4. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. Titus was a true Christian. He was a Gentile through and through, and he was a test case for the debate going on about following circumcision and adding the Old Testament law as part of salvation. To be clear here, circumcision, when, which, was demanded of the, which they demanded of the Gentiles, was an important Jewish rite. It was handed down 
from the days of Abraham in Genesis 17. Submitting by circ- to circumcision meant you accepted following the whole Jewish law. And for the Jew in that time, that's, that was good. And Titus's presence at the Jerusalem Council and leaving uncircumcised displayed for all to see that Jewish legalists were preaching a different gospel than Paul and the apostles were. We see in verses 3 and 4, as you look at your Bible, false brothers. False brothers is translated sham Christians in the New English Bible or pseudo-Christians in the Phillips paraphrase. These were like spies or secret agents who penetrated to search out the weak areas of an enemy's positions. And then you see they were secretly brought in. You see those words, meaning they infiltrated. They sneaked in alongside, much like the guy in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that somebody at night went in and planted weeds among the crops. And then it was decided to wait until the harvest to separate the wheat from the weeds. Their goals, the Jewish legalists, were twofold, to spy on the freedom we have in Christ. And while hostile intent, they purposed to observe the apostles' freedom from the Mosaic law and from the legalism it engendered. Second, they intended to make Christian slaves. They wanted to bring believers back into bondage to enslave them to the laws, the rules, and ceremonies. And specifically, they strongly insisted that Titus be circumcised. But Paul stood firm because of the truth of the gospel that was at stake in the entire Christian church. To impose circumcision on Titus would be to deny that salvation was by faith alone and to affirm that in addition to faith, there must be obedience to the law for acceptance before God. Titus, the basic issue of the gospel was involved and Paul would not deviate or yield for a moment. And then we see slavery, slavery. The word there, strong bondage to the works-based attempt to be righteous. The Jewish legalists sought to receive acceptance from God for what they had done and not receive from God what he had done on their behalf. So this was a difficult lesson for the early Christian church to deal with. Because let's face it, throughout the Old Testament, the Jews were taught to not have anything to do with the Gentiles, with the heathen, with the pagan. And now Christ comes and it tells us in Ephesians 2 in a powerful way that when Jesus died and he was on the cross, he tore down the wall of hostility and he brought these two, Jewish and Gentile, together and those who believe in Christ would become one new man in him. And so you can imagine it would have taken them a period of time to accept and adjust to these changes. And James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, gave the summation of the arguments and the conclusion of the matter In Acts 15, as Jewish as he was, he made it clear that a Gentile does not have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. God's program for this day, he said, is to take out the Gentiles, a people for his own name. Jews and Gentiles are saved the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. And then James then asked that the assembly counsel the Gentiles to do nothing that would offend unbelieving Jews, lest they hinder them from coming to faith in Christ Paul won the battle. So Paul's concern was for the truth of the gospel, not for the peace of the church. Peace at any price was not Paul's philosophy of ministry and nor should it be ours. 
We see also the truth of the gospel preserved for future generations. Not only was he fighting for the true gospel, but he wanted to preserve it. Look at verse 5 of Galatians 2. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Preserving the transformative power of the gospel. Obtaining our righteousness in Christ. Overcoming freedom that helps us overcome sin in our life. Liberty to live in the spirit and the law of Christ. Freedom, like we sang, coming out of that grave. The freedom that we have in Christ. Paul was not going back to his roots of self-righteous works works after he experienced Christ on the road to Damascus. And he also experienced the miraculous power of the gospel in the Gentiles' lives as he traveled. We see that word preserved there in verse 5, remain, a permanent state. This is an important distinction. In the methods of ministry, they had no spiritual importance. Paul became all things to all men. If we think about 1 Corinthians 9, I encourage you to read that. To the weak, I became weak. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile, and so on. But in doctrinal matters, especially those pertaining to the gospel, he would not change. He would do what he could to accommodate weak Christians, but he would not yield an inch on the truth to accommodate false Christians. So Titus did not need to be circumcised because he was a Gentile. But Timothy who was part Jewish through his mother, he felt needed to be circumcised so they could better minister at places that had Jewish people to help lead them to Christ. And so Timothy was circumcised in Acts 16. So the application here is that we must guard against the temptation of adding to God's revelation our man-made ideas. I hope out of all that you get that, that we can see as human beings, and I'm as guilty as anybody. It's so easy to want to add our ideas, our, our bent toward things, our opinion toward things, onto what the revelation of the Word of God says. So we have to guard against that. Our third main point this morning is this, that Paul was commissioned, commissioned, called by the apostles to preach the true gospel. This is very encouraging as we see after they had this debate and this discussion, what was the outcome of it? Well, the recognition of spiritual fruit produced through Paul's ministry. They couldn't deny the Gentiles were coming to Christ, that the Holy Spirit was coming upon them, that they were being changed and transformed just like the Jewish believers were in the church in Jerusalem. In Galatians 2.6, it says, and from those who seem to be influential, What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, verse 8, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, the Jewish believers, worked also through me, Paul, for mine to the Gentile believers. Paul was not being rude in verse 6 or disrespectful, but he was saying that he was equal to the apostles of the Jerusalem church with the power and the authority through the Holy Spirit and the gospel. Moses said this, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. 
Again, Paul is not seeking affirmation here. The Jewish legalists may have been putting Paul down because he wasn't considered one of the 12 official apostles in Galatians 1.19. The 12 apostles were held in high regard in the church at Jerusalem. And Paul says God does not show any partiality. The 12 apostles contributed nothing to Paul's knowledge and understanding of the gospel or his authority to preach it, as we read in Galatians 1, that it was a revelation to him. And then Paul went to Jerusalem after preaching for 17 years to show and to have the apostles recognize God's powerful hand on his ministry. So here's a key thought. The difference between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles was not the content of the gospel, but the focus of their perspective ministries. Let me make this clear. The difference between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles was not the content of the gospel, but the focus of their perspective ministries. Peter and the apostles were reaching Jews for Christ, and Paul primarily was reaching Gentiles for Christ. So therefore, no one needs to add to the gospel because it was not given by men, but by God. Both the apostles and Paul were entrusted with the gospel from God. So there is a figure of speech in grammar, and it's described as syndaki, syndaki. And what it is, it's a figure of speech in which a part is made to represent the whole or vice versa. It's true that when we read in the book of Acts, Paul preached to Jews and Peter preached to Gentiles. But what they're saying in these verses, their primary ministries were Paul to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews. I want to make that clear. And so the recognition of grace given to Paul to preach. They knew that the grace of God, the favor of God, had fallen upon Paul, the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. And when James and Cephas, Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. We talked about pillars earlier. And these are James, Peter, and John. The pillars there means a Jewish term for great teachers. And the Jewish legalists use this term in a sarcastic way to refer to their support of Peter, James, and John. But Paul uses it here to kind of throw it in their face that he and the apostles are in harmony with the gospel and in harmony in relationship with one another. Only God's grace Only God's free, sovereign, and undeserved blessing could account for the mighty spreading of the gospel and the building and planting of Jewish and Gentile churches. And the apostles recognized from stories they heard and some Peter himself eyewitness accounts of seeing that God was using Paul in a powerful way to win Gentiles to Christ. And there need not be any restraint or change made to the gospel Paul was preaching. So here's where we get personal with you, the recognition of the calling of God on Paul's life. In verse 9, the second part, it says, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. When the first uh, Sunday of the month we have communion and we have people who are becoming members, we extend to them the right hand of fellowship. We welcome them to the front and we welcome them in to our church family as members. And so I remember Dale McCauley coming back from Liberia. One Sunday he was up here and he gave me this, this this particular handshake. And if you go to Africa, 
especially East Africa where I was, they have a very special handshake, the right hand of fellowship. Well, right here, the right hand of fellowship in the Near East is to clasp the right hand of a person to make a solemn vow of friendship and a mark of fellowship and partnership together. And Paul was recognized as a friend as much as a true preacher of the gospel. We see, again, the divisions of ministry, Gentiles and Jews. This is not saying there are two gospels, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. They may use different methods and culture approaches, but in the end, the same gospel is preached. There's diversity in sharing the gospel. There's diversity in worship. And it's important for us to understand the callings of God in our own lives as well. The most important call that we could have, number one there, is the call of God to salvation. Salvation, that's the most important call that God makes to any human being is to give them the opportunity to receive Christ and to make him the Lord of their life. But then there's the call of God to be set apart for him, to be made holy, to be growing and becoming more like Jesus, to let Christ be the Lord of our life, to be filled with the Holy Spirit so he has control of every area of our life. In 2018, ISIS victim Nadia Murad shared the Nobel Peace Prize with a Congolese physician named Dennis Makwiji. And Dr. Makwiji, nicknamed Dr. Miracle, is a pioneering surgeon who has treated thousands of victims of sexual violence for the medical after effects of gang rape and brutality. Recognizing Jesus' relentless call on Christians to serve the suffering, Makwiji urges fellow believers, quote, as long as our faith is defined by theory and not connected with practical realities, we shall not be able to fulfill the mission entrusted to us by Christ. If we are Christ, we have no choice but to be alongside the weak, the wounded, the refugees, and women suffering discrimination, end of quote. We are called to be set apart. We're also called to serve, to serve throughout the changing seasons of our life. And that looks different at different times of our life for a lot of reasons. In the 11th century, King Henry III of Bavaria, he grew tired of being the king in court life and the pressures of being a monarch. And he made an application to Prior Richard at a local monastery. He wanted to be accepted as one who would be a meditating monk and spend the rest of his life in the monastery. Your majesty, said Prior Richard, do you understand that the pledge here is one of absolute obedience? That will be hard because you have been a king. I understand, said King Henry, the rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. And Prior Richard wisely said, then I tell you what to do. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has put you. And when King Henry died, a statement was written about his life the king learned to rule by being obedient. When we tire of our roles and our responsibilities and of our calling, it helps us to remember that God has planted us in a certain place and told us to be a good accountant, a good teacher, a good engineer, a good mother, a good father. And Christ expects us to be faithful where he puts us. And when he returns, we will rule together with him. And then the ultimate call is the call to sainthood. 
when we go to heaven, when we graduate this life, when we become joint heirs with Jesus Christ, when our faith will become sight and we will rule and reign with him for all of eternity. Those are the calls on our life. They vary because of our uh, unique gifts and personality and talents and spiritual givings that God gives us and our desires and passions. But all of us as a believer have calling on our life. So our application, do we sense the commission of God to use our spiritual gifts and natural talents to fulfill his calling on our lives? Do we sense that? Do we sense that calling? And do we have an intentional goal through our calling to use our spiritual gifts and natural talents to fulfill it? Lastly, this morning, a very practical thing as they were uh, adjourning the Jerusalem Council and in Galatians 2.10, it says, the only thing the apostles asked to remember as Paul and Barnabas left, it says, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing Paul said I was eager to do. Now the request by the Jerusalem church leaders was a practical one and not a doctrinal one, and Paul was eager to comply. The word poor here was an ancient nickname for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They became known as the Ebionites. That was the name given to the poorer people in the Jerusalem church. And he did that to alleviate the suffering. To alleviate the suffering, the Jerusalem church had a serious problem with feeding and caring for its members. Now think about it. In that culture, in that time, it was one thing to say you were a believer in Christ, but when you publicly were baptized, then what happened? Well, if you were Jewish, you pretty much were considered dead by your family and separated from them. In the Jewish culture, you probably lost your job. You didn't have any cultural standing. And so you're part of this new group of believers. And they're trying, as we read in Acts 2, 42 through 47, to gather their monies together beyond their needs to help meet the needs of the other Jewish believers. The other thing is the Jerusalem church was growing very fast. The more you have people, the more there are needs. And everywhere Paul went, it seemed he was gathering a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. The Gentile church was indebted to minister to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. It tells us in Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, Respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. And out of respect and honor for the mother church, the Gentile believers felt they wanted to participate in helping meet the needs of these Ebionites, these poor Jewish believers in the home church. But not only that, he wanted to advance unity among the Jewish and Gentile Christ followers. Such offerings would alleviate human suffering but they would also demonstrate genuine concern on the part of Gentile Christians for Jewish Christians. This in turn would help promote unity and love among the believers and help prevent the kinds of misunderstandings which were undermining the churches in the Galatia region. So we need to recognize the fact that God calls people to different ministries in different places, yet we all preach the same gospel. We're all seeking to work together to build his church And among those who know and love Christ, there can be no such thing as competition. Peter was a great man and perhaps 
the leading apostle, and yet he gladly yielded to Paul, a newcomer, and permitted him to carry on his ministry as the Lord led him. Previously, Paul explained his independence from the apostles in Galatians 1. But interestingly enough, in Galatians 2, he's talking now about his interdependence with the apostles. He was free, and yet he was willingly in fellowship with them in the ministry of the gospel. Warren Wiersbe said, this correct doctrine is never a substitute for Christian duty. Correct doctrine is never a substitute for Christian duty. Christianity is not a static belief system, but designed to be a relationship that grows the believer through his or her obedient actions toward meeting the needs of others to further God's kingdom. Here's our final application today. In what small way this week can we alleviate suffering in someone's life and advance unity among the fellow members of our church family? In what small way? We always think of big things, but what are some small things that we could do to alleviate the suffering in someone's life and advance unity among our church family? Here's our key thought. Each follower of Christ must seek to understand what God made them for in this life and to fulfill and protect that calling. That's why it's so important that we find our basis and our foundation in the gospel of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for helping us to go through verse by verse and trying to get a better understanding, Lord, of what was going on in the early church. And Lord, it's interesting as we look at the false teachings of today, that they're merely rewrapped false teachings that the early church was facing. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. In this modern world, we've just rewrapped some of these things, made them more attractive, add a little bit of nuance to them. But yet, Lord, there's just so many things out there that have been added to the gospel or taken away. And so, Lord, help us to be faithful to the gospel and also faithful to the calling that you've given us. So when we stand before you, we can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.